Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. us here on another episode of Market Journal. I'm Bryce Dewskin. Planters are rolling across the state of Nebraska. Warm temperatures this past week brought many tractors and planters into the field. We join you today from southeast Nebraska as corn is going into the ground here. As Bill Boyer has pointed out, almost all of Nebraska is in some sort of drought situation. Where we stand today is classified as a severe drought category. The dry conditions are making for some good planting weather, but rain would certainly be welcome. We got started planting corn on Monday, April 10th. Uh, conditions are really nice. The ground is mellow, um, relatively warm. I think our soil temperatures are around 50, so uh, conditions are really good. Conditions are good, but the ground remains dry. Near Panama in southeast Nebraska, moisture has been hard to come by. Yeah, we ended 2022 right at 10 inches below normal, and we ended a very dry year. Crops suffered quite a bit. Um, we're hoping for some recharge over the winter, but going into 23, uh, we should be about four inches of moisture in 23 so far. And according to our rainfall accumulators, we're at about two inches on the year. And it doesn't sound bad two inches, but a lot of that was a quarter inch at a time, which evaporates before it does much good. Our top foot of soil actually has some decent moisture, it feels like, in it. But you get below that and there's really nothing at all. Modern farming practices such as no-till do help when it comes to soil moisture. I think the no-till is really a big helper because it feels like every time you work the ground, you're going to lose maybe a half inch of moisture. So if we can conserve everything, it's going to be a benefit to us. As for the planting season, it is off to the races, as most producers in the region did begin planting over the past week. Well, we'll plant corn for probably a couple weeks here. We're not in any big hurry. Uh, kind of want to space it out a little bit, not put all your eggs in one basket. Um, if we can get started on beans by late April, that'll be a good thing. Obviously, everyone is hopeful for some rain to help out this year's crop. Coming up on today's show, Lee Scholes from Iowa State will join us as we look at the hog markets. And on the topic of rain, Bill Boyer will join us to share the latest when it comes to weather. We'll get to those stories coming up in a moment, but first. The 108th Nebraska Legislature is currently in session. During this legislative session, there are numerous bills and amendments being discussed that may be of interest to ag producers. These measures address concerns around ag lease termination deadlines, amendments to the Right to Farm Act, and the Ag Weather Station funding in Nebraska. First, LB 591, which is the unwritten agricultural lease termination notice deadline. Currently, Nebraska court cases indicate that oral or unwritten leases of cropland can be terminated by six-month notice prior to the beginning of the next lease year. LB 591 would change the deadline from September 1st to January 1st, reducing the lease termination notice from six months to just three. If you have a handshake lease, 
agricultural lease, then the deadline to terminate the lease is September 1st. And if the lease isn't terminated, then it starts on the uh, subsequent March 1st. And the 591, it would change the date of the termination deadline from September 1st to January 1st. Um, the disadvantage of that of that proposal is that uh, the rule that we have now would be uh, gives the tenant six months. So everybody has you know six months to make new arrangements if new arrangements need to be made. And uh, um, I just last night uh, downloaded the public hearing testimony for uh, 591 and noticed that all the uh, major ag groups testified against the bill. Um, I didn't see the stock growers in there, but uh, you know, corn growers, Farm Bureau, uh, Farmers Union, uh, and so on, all testified against it. They said it's too big a change. Uh, it's you know, it's kind of the things if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And finally, the Nebraska Mesonet system has endured some funding challenges. The Mesonet system is a real-time statewide weather station network with operating systems at about half of the counties in Nebraska. LB401 seeks to mitigate those difficulties and reinforce the Mesonet system by providing funding to ensure there's at least one in each county in order to provide greater and more accurate coverage. Uh, Nebraska was, I believe, the very first state to establish a uh, Mesonet system. Um, now, uh, the states that have, you know, sort of copied Nebraska system have uh, really enhanced those systems so that they provide a lot more services. Uh, there are system enhancements that could be needed uh, that, that could be very useful. The MESNET system up to now has pretty much been funded by the university uh, with because of the budget crunches at the university. Uh, I believe seven uh, stations were closed last year and uh, another 10 are kind of on the chopping block but the university i think probably needs some help in terms of keeping these uh, systems up and running and so uh, the bill that was proposed was uh, to provide state funding through the department of natural resources to help pick up uh, some of the the expense of uh, maintaining uh, the, the Mesonet systems. One. Now, if you'd like some additional information from Dave on this topic, head on over to the website cropwatch.unl.edu. The 90th legislative session is scheduled to continue through June 9th. If you'd like to keep up on all the things happening in the legislative session, we've included a helpful link along with this story. You can find that at the Market Journal website. Well, grazing and hang cover crops has become more popular over the past few years. When it comes to grazing cover crops as forage, there are two options on what to plant, annual or perennial. We caught up with extension educator Brad Schick to discuss what should go into planning for turning livestock out to graze either of these two options, these uh, two types of cover crops. Market Journal's Bill Dodd brings us this story. Earlier this year, Nebraska Extension held its annual cover crop grazing conference at the Eastern Nebraska Research and Extension Center near Meade, Nebraska. This expo sought to help first-time and experienced farmers looking to fine-tune their cover crop grazing management utilizing cover crops as an alternative forage source. Speaker Brad Schick was on hand to discuss grazing perennial and annual forages. The biggest take-home message from Brad at this expo was that everything falls back on the plan you have in place. 
We need to plan with our goals in mind. Uh, come up with a, a plan, a goal, and work off that. And if we have a good plan in place, we can deviate from that because inevitably, things aren't going to go perfectly. Yeah. So you know, it, it all heart starts with our goals, right? So we want to know what the end point is. Uh, that determines when we plant, what we plant, how we graze, uh, what we graze, class of livestock. Uh, when we talk about annuals, uh, we want to know uh, that perfect planting date. Uh, when we want to know perennials, we want to know that perfect grazing time. Uh, if it's thinking about water, you know, this year if you're dry land, uh, it's, it's not real great. If you have irrigation, if you're limited, that changes how we do stuff. Uh, it can change our goals, uh, but if we have a plan in place, uh, we can better adapt to those, uh, those changes. Aside from planning what and when you'll want to plant for your operation, another thing you'll want to keep in mind are the needs of the particular livestock you plan on turning out to graze. Right, so you know if we're talking about an annual system and what we're planting, uh, whether that's a fall grazing, we want to do oats or turnips, uh, maybe we're talking about a, a spring grazing where we want to have plant rye after silage or something like that. Uh, we want to know what the quality of that is. So if we're really high energy, high protein, we may want to put our, our yearlings or, or calves we weaned out on that. Uh, whereas uh, if we have a dry cow, we don't need the highest quality. Um, now later in the trimester, uh, we, we may want that uh, to increase that body condition score. So it's all about meeting the, the needs of our animal with the resources we have. The cost of grazing forages can vary greatly depending on whether you opt for planting perennial or annual crops. However, when planning out what forages you'll want your livestock to graze on, another key variable in this equation are your input costs. Uh, you know, there's inputs to basically nothing to really enhancing it. Um, some would even some people fertilize them uh, to try to get more if there may be more of a cattle-centric mentality. Um, if it's kind of an afterthought, it might just be we're just going to plant it out there. It's going to it's going to farm those nutrients that it, the nitrogen that it can find, scavenge, uh, and and we're going to get a bonus from grazing our animals out there. Uh, so there's a lot of things to consider, but uh, uh, you know, taking soil tests is a good idea too. Uh, we maybe can build some carbon or build some other nutrients that we want after years of of grazing as well, uh, depending on what your goals are, and, and you have to do it according to how. It works for your system, soil type, rainfall, uh, and, and how you farm and, or have cattle. So perennial, you know, you're going to have a, a lot of commitment to that because it's perennial meaning, you know, basically forever, right? So we're going to have a long-term pasture or something like that. Um, you know, there's a lot of cost inputs right up front. You know, it's going to cost a lot to, to if we want to convert cropland, for example, um, where if we're still utilizing crops and we're wanting to plant some annuals, uh, after say silage or, or soybeans, something like that, you know, the cost is going to be lower. Um, you're not going to be able to get as much of the grazing off of that, obviously, and so that's a different system. Whether forage is needed in the spring or in the fall, decisions you make now may impact what is grown and how much your budget will be impacted. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. All right, thanks for that story, Bill. If you'd like some additional help or guidance when determining what cover crops would make good forage for your operations in your particular area, Brad recommends reaching out to your local extension office. What well, is now time to turn our attention over the markets? This week, we're taking an in-depth look at the hog markets. We were joined earlier this week by Lee Scholes of Iowa State University to get his take. Here's our conversation from Wednesday afternoon. 
Well, let's talk about the latest hogs and pigs report. That data that came out from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. As you had a chance to review it, did any numbers uh, stick out to you in particular that can help uh, shed a light on what's happening in the lean hog market? So we've had now a couple of weeks to digest those numbers. And, you know, I think it, it came in pretty much with where we've seen it pre-report. Um, you know, if there was some surprises, I think that the heavy market hog category was larger than, than expected. But we really seen that in the slaughter numbers. And then when you looked at the, the farrowing intentions, I think those came in rather pessimistic compared to, to pre-report expectations and where we were even the previous quarter. So, you know, as I kind of look at it, it, it maybe shapes up as a short-term bearish, certainly what we're seeing, and maybe a bit of long-term bullish as we look at supplies potentially uh, tightening up as we get into the late, later part of 2023 and into 2024. You know, the one thing I really want to highlight is, you know, producers respond to, to profit expectations. Um, and we're certainly seeing those profit expectations really take a turn um, into red ink. But also we have a lot of outside forces, I think, impacting both producers as well as consumers as we talk about inflation and interest rates and consumer incomes. Those are all weighing across the, the pork supply complex. And I think that's coming, coming out in some of the numbers that we're seeing. Yeah, let's step a little bit deeper on that and kind of size up the current market as you see it. What are the factors leading to the prices we're seeing right now? And I guess for somebody who doesn't closely watch the lean hog market, share with our viewers kind of where things are at. Sure, and, and I'll point to the June contract is that's going to be kind of the, the one here in focus shortly. Uh, and, and you've looked at that June contract trading in late 2022 and into early 2023 in that 108 to 110 range uh, per hundredweight. Now you're seeing that contract trade in that 87 to 88 range. So we've seen a significant sell-off in the lead hog complex. Other contracts would show you know similar trajectory over that that time period. When you look at supplies, you know we've had larger supplies than we've expected, uh, but that's been really priced into the market. Market for some time. You know, look at hog slaughter's been up about one and a half percent since the beginning of the year. Since March 1, the latest hog and pigs report, it's been up a little bit more, but the market has realized that. I think what has been significantly weighing on the market is when we talk about the demand situation. Um, remember, you know, producers, it's not prices that consumers are responding to, it's consumer incomes, it's prices of substitutes, um, is really, I think, what's impacting our, our hog prices now. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Is something is that something you're seeing across the board with some different uh, you know protein choices that specific to the hog market uh, ultimately pork there, Lee? Well, when we focus in on pork, you know, I, I think it's important to, to keep in mind, you know, what is driving the, the pork complex? You know, what I like to highlight is that the bellies have been significantly below year ago levels. I think that speaks to really what's going on in the marketplace. Um, certainly egg prices have been higher. So as you looked at higher egg prices, bacon's a complement to that. I think that's pressured the bacon complex and pressured the wholesale and, and hog prices. Also, you have to think about food away from home. So we know that pork does really well away from home. Uh, and when you think about consumer incomes have been impacted, higher gas prices, increased inflation, that is certainly impacting consumers and what they're able to, to purchase for pork. You know, we've had the latest CPI data that came out for March. We're still seeing inflation at 5%. That's actually the lowest since April, May of 2021. But that basket of goods is still the highest we've ever seen it, right? When you look back to 82.84, which is our benchmark, a dollar then is worth about 33% 
what it was worth then. So you can think, think about that as that's really weighing on con consumers purchasing power of their dollar. Yeah, no doubt about that, Lee. Well, let's kind of extend this out to an outlook to 2023. Use the term bullish when you're looking at the kind of the long term of this market. Tell me more about your thoughts as we continue through this year. Yeah, so when you look at 2023, um, these could be the, the fourth highest prices ever still for, for hogs. And, you know, that may be a little bit bullish when you, when you think about that. Uh, but when you pair that against costs, uh, this is going to be some of the worst returns that we've seen producers have. Uh, you have to go back to 2009 or maybe even 10 years before that when we look at you know, how much red ink we've seen in the pork industry. So I think that po points to the really high cost of production. You know, my model suggests we're about a dollar per pound on cost of production for a fair to finish operation. That's 50% higher than we've seen in 2020. Um, so those are notable levels really weighing on those returns of producers. But if we do start to see the market, I think, squeeze up a bit as far as inventories and production, that gives me a little bit stronger story as we get into 2024 and maybe a bit of a rebound in prices. It's going to do a deep dive here on this market. Lee, we sure appreciate the time here on Market Journal. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Lee for his time this week. As a reminder, we post all of our market analyst segments as a standalone video on our YouTube page. Be sure to subscribe to Market Journal on YouTube if you've not done so already. Well, let's check in now with weather with Market Journal weather analyst Bill Boyer. Well, Bill, it was warm and windy most of this past week. I mentioned we continue to need rain all across the region. So tell us how are things looking on that front as we turn to the week ahead? Well, that's absolutely right, Bryce. We do need the moisture. And after a warm, windy week, we've seen a bit of a cool down here as we've ended the week. Uh, and we need some help, though. We've still got quite a few areas here in the central part of the country where we need the moisture. Still have those exceptional drought conditions in portions of east central Nebraska into northeast Nebraska. And uh, we also have some of the uh, extreme drought conditions scattered around as well. But you'll notice these areas can and the moisture has not been distributed equally. Uh, we have some areas here in the north, especially Valentine, over to Shadron, those areas almost an inch above normal year to date on precip, but you go just south a little bit, Alliance an inch and a quarter short of normal, pretty close there in the uh, Sydney and Scotts Bluff area over towards North Platte, Imperial as well about normal. Above normal by about uh, two thirds of an inch in McCook, Broken Bow a little above normal. Head to the east, Hastings, Grand Island, those are about normal. Norfolk, though, about a half an inch below normal, third of an inch below in Sioux City. Then Lincoln, almost eight-tenths of an inch below normal, and six-tenths of an inch below normal in Omaha. So we need the moisture, and the good news is it looks like there's some coming. A lot of disagreement, though, on our long-range models, so you're going to want to check your forecast here throughout the week. But we'll start today with some of these showers ending across the eastern portions of the state and uh, it's going to be left we're going to be left between systems here uh, Sunday into Monday. Now the models not completely agreeing on whether these storm systems are going to stall in the northwest or they're going to be showers starting Thursday especially and into Friday here across central and east Nebraska in the western and northwestern part of the state. Maybe some rain snow mix you'll even see some moderate to heavy showers there Thursday and then that system spins off away from us as we go Friday into next weekend. Again, consult your local forecast throughout the week as uh, still a lot of disagreement models. So we uh, want to caution you on pinpointing exactly where 
uh, this moisture is going to be. We do think temperatures are going to turn milder starting tomorrow, and that'll continue through the first part of the week, Sunday into Monday, and again Tuesday, mild to warm conditions out here again in our area. Then by Wednesday, we start to see that cooler air approach from the northwest, and then Thursday and into Friday, uh, a little more seasonal in terms of temperatures. Now, precip wise, again, if this model verifies, we are looking at central and eastern portions of the state, possibly picking up maybe a half an inch to an inch of rain or more, uh, even more across portions of Iowa. Again, it's going to be localized, but as we like to say, it only takes one or two storms this time of year to pile up some moisture that we need to save for the summer. As far as the longer range forecast, 8 to 14 day outlook, temps above normal here in southern portions of the area and uh, precip about normal. So it looks like uh, we're going to have to take our chances of rain whenever we can get them, Bryce. All right, thank you very much for that update, Bill. Finally today, mare's tail is a common weed here in Nebraska, and it's estimated to be growing on over 2 million acres in the eastern portion of the state alone. To make matters worse, glyphosate resistant mare's tail is spreading. There are certain options though to nip this in the bud before planting even begins if you've not done so already. We recently caught up with an extension weed management specialist to get his input on effectively managing these weeds. Market Journal's Mike Straub has this story. Winter annual weeds are taking advantage of the recent warm temperatures to resume growth and development, making this an ideal time to scout for mare's tail. Many mare's tail populations in Nebraska have evolved resistance to glyphosate and ALS inhibitors. If not managed soon, post-emergent control can be very challenging, especially in soybean fields. Mare's tail is a broadleaf weed, uh, which is a significant weed problem in the state of Nebraska, particularly in eastern Nebraska. Mare's tail can emerge in the fall, means if you go to the ground, which was harvested last year in corn and soybean, mare's tail will start emerging and when you go back to the field, you will see Merstel might be around one or two inch tall already by April. And another thing about Merstel is it can also emerge in early spring, like this is the right time when some new emergence of Merstel can also happen. A lot of populations of Merstel has evolved resistant to glyphosate, uh, which is a very commonly used uh, burn down herbicide. Uh, but now it is no more long working on mare's tail because a uh, lot of populations of mare's tail has evolved resistant to glyphosate and also giant ragweed is also resistant to glyphosate. It could be significant uh, impact on uh, yield and competition with uh, soybean particularly is very sensitive uh, early in the season and so the problem is if we do not control well then by the time growers will go for planting corn and soybean Merstel might be about six to eight inch tall and it can provide really strong competition with uh, soybean, which is just uh, very tender and just emerging from the soil. So it can provide good competition. And if you do not control this merstel or giant ragweed, uh, it can uh, significantly reduce the yield. Another option is to use a pre-emergence herbicide, uh, which can be applied within few days of planting. Uh, corn and uh, for soybean majority of uh, pre-emergence herbicides should be applied within two to three days of planting soybean. So these pre-emergence herbicides can provide some residual control of uh, not only winter annual weeds but also some summer annual weeds like water hemp and palmer amaranth. 
So each herbicide has a planting interval, uh, means for example, if you apply to 4D type of herbicide in a burn down application, you need to wait uh, at least seven days or so before you plant uh, your corn or soybean. So depending on uh, herbicide you use and how much rate you apply, uh, you need to watch for planting interval. Maristel is most susceptible to herbicides when it's still in the rosette stage, before bolting. For proper Maristel management, burn down along with residual herbicides should be used. For a non-chemical option, consider light tillage for weed control. So when it comes to summer annual weeds like uh, water hemp and palmer amaranth, uh, the best way we are recommending to use uh, pre-emergence herbicide uh, within few days of planting corn or soybean and then uh, depending on uh, how the weed emergence will occur, uh, you may need to consider applying a post-emergence herbicide uh, uh, sometime after a month or uh, one and a half month uh, in the field uh, and make sure you select herbicide uh, that uh, can provide control of those glyphosate resistant populations because uh, lot of uh, population of water hemp and palmer amaranth, uh, they are resistant to glyphosate and so just applying glyphosate-based herbicide will not provide very effective control of those. There is a non-chemical control option for merstail and giant ragweed is uh, we have done some research and uh, if you do like um, light tillage before a week of planting corn or soybean, it can also provide significant control of um, glyphosate resistant tail and giant ragweed. I know a lot of growers, they prefer no-till, but even once in a while when they have a lot of issues of uh, tail and giant ragweed, when they go to the field and when, when they see those, and if uh, it is not possible to apply herbicides, it is also important uh, to include uh, light tillage, uh, about 10 centimeter of tillage can provide even up to like 90% control of those uh, uh, glyphosate resistant weeds population and so considering strategic tillage means you don't need to do it every year but maybe once in a while if you bring those tillage out and do it uh, it can provide significant control and it is a non-chemical control option. As important as it is to get seed in the ground it's equally important to scout for unwanted weeds especially those resistant to glyphosate. Whether you choose chemical or non-chemical option Timing is essential to rid of weeds before they start competing for your crops. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Mike Strop. Thanks for the information, Mike. If you'd like to learn more about glyphosate-resistant mare's tail or other weed suppression, you can find all of that by visiting cropwatch.unl.edu. Well, that is going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to follow Market Journal on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram to join in on the conversation. You can also watch our entire show on YouTube as well as on Acres TV. Hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.